Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Chloe Ashby about her debut literary novel, Wet Paint. Chloe is an author and an award-winning arts journalist. She graduated from the Courtauld Institute of Art, and has since interviewed artists, designers and photographers, as well as reviewing exhibitions and books. In this episode, we discuss revisiting past emotions to write characters' feelings authentically, finding trusted readers, and how her novel writing process has changed now she's writing her second book. But first, here's Chloe with an excerpt from Wet Paint. I can tell this is one of those days when you're not going to say a word and I do all the talking, which is fine, really, and anyway, if it wasn't fine, would that make any difference? It is harder when you go quiet, though, when it's me doing all the work. Do you remember the day we both sat in total silence? That was terrible. I actually feel a bit sick. It's hot in here, hotter than usual. Mind if I open a window? Thanks. That's better, a breeze. I've been thinking about what you said, that fear of abandonment thing. At first, I found it funny. I know, defence mechanism. I'm getting good at this. It just hadn't occurred to me that I might be afraid of something I grew up with, sort of like being an only child or missing a limb. If I'm honest, yes, I suppose I have been a bit... What was the word you used? Compulsive. I know it sounded like stealing, but really it was just borrowing. The sex, that came earlier, probably was escapism. The drinking... Oh, for fuck's sake, sorry. Can I have a tissue? I can't blame Dad for everything but I can blame him for the drinking. Anyway, I'm doing it again, back to the timeline. That's what you want, isn't it? I can't seem to focus on the hours, days or weeks before. I just keep rushing forward to that moment. It was morning. We were going to catch a train. I wanted... Oh, sorry, I'm picking at your chair again. I know, it's better than pulling at my cuticles. But still... I'd rather not leave your armrest looking like one of those cats. You know the ones I mean, with not enough hair and too much skin. Is it okay if I stand? When we got to the station, something snapped inside me, here, just under my ribs. In my head, it sounded like cracking knuckles, the finger joints popping. I was tired and worried about what I'd done, worried I wouldn't be allowed to see her again. 
I remember wondering if there was an alternate universe where all the people who stepped out of my life hang out together. I know, I know, abandonment. And if she'd end up there too. People were getting off a train on the platform opposite. I remember taking a step towards the tracks and peering down at my feet. There was that yellow line, and then the nubby bit, some grooves, a faded white stripe at the very edge, the edge of the abyss. God, (laughs) that's a bit dramatic, isn't it? It's funny how some things stay with you, though. Like these. How long have you had them? I'm pretty sure they had to wipe man-size from the box a couple of years ago. Because women blow their noses, too. Sorry, tangent. Maybe if I sit down again. When I looked up, the train was gone. There was another coming, this time on our side of the tracks. A speaker announced that it wouldn't be stopping. I know what you're thinking. What was I doing there in the first place? I probably told you I hadn't been back since university. The truth is, I can't remember making any decisions. I just felt I had no choice. I had to go back because that's where it started, so that's where it had to end. But I never meant for the ending to look like that. Me standing on a platform, toes sticking out over the tracks. Honestly, I don't know why I'm smiling. Obviously, there's nothing to smile about. Not a thing. It's just... If you'd told me a year ago that I'd be sitting here, I'd have laughed. Hi, Chloe. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, Wet Paint. Hi, Chloe, fellow Chloe. Thank you for having (laughs) me today. So can you start by telling us what your novel was about? Yes, I can. Um, So Wet Paint follows Eve, who she's a 26-year-old woman. She is the kind of person who, if you said, how are you, Eve? She would say, I am fine. I'm totally fine. She has been scraping along for the past few years, doing things like cleaning her shed flat in exchange for cheap rent. And she relies on various small routines, among them her weekly visits to the Courtauld Gallery, where she goes and sits in front of Manet's painted barmaid, who is almost her de facto therapist. So since the death of her best friend, Grace, Eve has been keeping everything and everyone at arm's length. But as always with these things, there are painful memories that she can't shake. And it's not long before her very precariously maintained life begins to unravel. She does things like take up life modeling, uh, which is sort of a bid for empowerment. And while she's in the studio, she lays bare her body while keeping hidden this chaos that is fizzing around inside her head as her self-destructive urges then begin to spiral out of control, she is forced to finally face her trauma. Mm-hmm. And the, the life modeling is such an interesting juxtaposition because like you say, she lays, she lays herself bare, she's totally exposed. And yet so much of what's going on, on in her internal life, she doesn't tell a soul. So that's a really interesting way of exploring that. So can you talk a bit about the kind of the life modeling aspect then? Um, Mm. what made you decide to kind of explore that as one of her responses to the grief? So part of it was that I wanted to explore this dissonance, this sort of disconnect between the way we feel and the way we present ourselves to the world. And it's something we all do, I think, or at least I definitely do it. Um, You know, sometimes it's easier to tell someone you're fine than to make them feel awkward or to to invite them into what's really going on inside your head. 
And that disconnect with Eve, I think, shines through most powerfully in those scenes because she is literally standing naked in front of a room full of artists. Her body has to be still, completely still. And yet her mind is often racing with these thoughts that are uncontrollable. Um, it also, the life modeling was a way for me to explore this idea of seeing and being seen. So one of the things I wanted to look at with the novel was the way that women in particular are looked at in life and in art and you know who's doing that looking often it's men um which is something I'm sure we'll go on to talk about but it's often a kind of a charged looking um and that again is something that that sort of crops up in the life modeling studio for Eve because to begin with she she does feel empowered in a way she thinks well great all these people are giving up you know their Tuesday evening to come and look at me and to draw me but towards the end she begins to feel or to realize that her body to these artists is little more than a still life so you know she mm. she may as well be a bowl of fruit or like a block of wood for, for all they they really care <laughs> yeah I hadn't really considered how difficult it must be for a life model until I read this book and where there's a bit where Eve's kind of looking at what they've drawn and she sort of sees that some of the artists have been quite flattering in the way they draw her body and others have pointed out all the kind of insecurities she has in herself and I just thought oh god that wouldn't that be awful to to go and look at these drawings and see that they'd <laughs> I don't know draw on your cellulite or or some part of your body that you were self-conscious about so that really highlighted that to me oh yeah yeah it's and also it just I think highlights the fact that everyone you know sees differently it's so subjective and it's often tells you more about who's doing the looking than mm. than what they're looking at yeah she definitely jokes about someone giving her a giant watermelon head <laughs> I think <laughs> at one point <laughs> So tell me then, when did that, where did that inspiration come from for this novel? Was there a specific moment you can pin it to or did it come um, almost like uh, a discovery and all these pieces coming together? It definitely developed over time, sort of with the writing. Um, but from the beginning, so there were two things that were really the starting point for me. One was this voice, which, you know, turned out to be Eve's voice. And it belonged to a young woman who was restless and detached. And it was quite a kind of a spiky voice, quite dry at times, also fairly funny. Um, so that voice was sort of there from the start. And then the other thing that was on my mind was this painting, which is the painting that Eve ends up visiting on a weekly basis. And that is Manet's A Bar at the Folie Berger, which hangs in the Courtauld Gallery. And for anyone who isn't familiar with it I'll just describe it very briefly um it shows a barmaid her name is Suzanne she's standing behind this bar that is topped with all these kind of lush expensive objects like um champagne topped with this gold foil and clementines in a crystal bowl and behind her is this giant gold framed mirror and in the mirror you can see a crowd kind of mingling in this busy interior and the crowd is sort of blurred. You can't quite see what's going on, but the general atmosphere is kind of one of fun and merriment. And then by contrast, Suzanne, the barmaid, stands there with this enigmatic expression and you can't tell whether she's sad or bored or frustrated. Um, 
but something about her being marooned behind the bar just got me um and it's what kind of gets Eve so was it the painting then that was your starting point yes it definitely was it's it's a painting that I have been a big fan of for a long time so I studied at the Courtauld Institute which is opposite the gallery and I think that was the first time I had seen the painting in the flesh um and there is just something about this woman Suzanne's face you just you can't tell what she's thinking and for Eve that becomes a very a very big part of it because her friend the friend who has died without giving any spoilers before she died you know Eve had had no idea what was really going on she couldn't tell what she was thinking and so it bothers her that she also can't tell what is on the barmaid's mind Mm. and I'm really interested to hear your reasoning and your inspiration behind the title wet paint so where did that come from Mm. yes I love this question um so the title was something that I kind of grappled with for a while and it this title because it went through a a few iterations but this one came after I had finished the book I think almost just a few months before my agent submitted it to publishers but what I really wanted to do with the title was to sort of evoke this state of flux in which Eve finds herself so her life is kind of it's unfixed it's unstable she's existing in this sort of hazy mid-space between university and adulthood Mm. which is kind of a time that we all associate with coming of age when we figure out who and what we want to be and it and it is that but it's also very unpredictable and hard to navigate and for someone like Eve who is also so stuck in the past it can be a time that's really hard to handle and so yeah I sort of I sort of wanted to get across this feeling of her being stuck and almost like a half formed thing you know she's not done she's Mm. she's she needs to she needs to figure some stuff out (laughs) yeah titles are so interesting aren't they because I think some people are great at titles I think they're a whole different skill like I don't think I'm good at (laughs) titles um and they check like you say they change you can work on them with your agent and kind of figure out a better one um but yeah I think wet paint's a great title because like obviously it's metaphorical but it fits very nicely with the the art theme and like you say this idea of kind of being unfinished and things not being uh things not being set which is very much what um Eve is going through at, that, at this point in the novel oh well, I'm glad you like it yeah it's definitely a reflection of that kind of messy stage of life um mm. yes which I'm quickly realizing those messy stages are the stages I like to write about <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned this voice came to you, this slight, slight spiky, slightly funny voice. And I heard another interview with you where you said some of your friends were quite surprised that the book has a <laughs> kind of funny element to it and a, uh, that Eve's voice has that kind of wit to it. So what was that like to write that kind of, uh, that kind of spiky wit, I suppose? It was really fun. Um, yeah, it was really fun. I mean, one of the my favorite things about writing this novel was spending time in Eve's head because the novel is written in the first person present and I think or I hope as a reader you you really feel like you're you're in her head too and at times that can probably be quite um tricky uh and hard to bear but 
she has this funny side to her she's she's kind of wonderfully weird in a way and she has quite a unique way of looking at the world and I think because the book does deal with quite a lot of um thorny and kind of dark themes you know there's a lot of sadness in the Mm. book and it needed some levity in there too and some humor to break that up and for Eve I mean for Eve in a way the humor is a coping mechanism and and that obviously isn't isn't the way of dealing with, with things but I think it I don't know it's just a part of her and and it sort of helps her move along mm. it also gives off that impression to other people that she's coping when she's definitely not yeah exactly it does which kind of goes back to that whole the whole idea of the way we way we present ourselves mm. versus the way we're feeling and yeah humor for her I think is definitely a sort of a sort of shield in a way mm. um, and a way of keeping everyone at a distance so as we've mentioned there are some pretty tough themes in this novel the novel deals a lot with mental health but there is a element of hope in this book and I thought that there were certain characters who really helped bring that hope alive really so you've got Max who's her one of her childhood long-term friendships and also later on in the novel you've got a younger character called Molly who helps Eve in who helps Eve in different ways really because she's had a very difficult childhood as well so why was including these relationships so important to you to kind of contrast say to Eve's um, parents or flatmates even I think so yes as you said Eve doesn't come from a kind of happy family and one thing I was quite keen to show was that it's possible to find this kind of familial support and love from you know you can find it anywhere you don't Mm. just get it from your parents so that was that was sort of one part of it Max is important I think because he's an example one of the few examples of a man who looks at Eve in the way that she wants to be looked at and the way that she deserves to be looked Mm. at um there's a lot uh in the book sort of to do with the slightly threatening nature of the male gaze and I guess in a way I wanted to show that not all men are (laughs) are bad um I've had quite a few people interestingly tell me that they kind of fancy Max um (laughs) which has been quite funny to hear (laughs) um and a bit of a dish I've got to say (laughs) oh Max um (laughs) and then Molly Molly who is this very sweet child she brings out a side of Eve that I don't think anyone else really does it's a it's a very soft side of her it's playful and I think um one of the key things in that relationship is as time goes on Eve finds herself she's able to be honest with Molly which is so important when she can't even really be honest with herself Mm. um so yeah that's why that's why that that relationship is so key it's really interesting you say about Max because I had this feeling when I was reading it and a a hope really that he wasn't going to turn out to be horrible because I think I've read a lot (laughs) of novels where a character's spiraling and even the people that they're closest to end up kind of betraying them in some way or another and Max thank god is one of the good guys and there are times where you're like 
I'm thinking of particularly of uh, the Christmas period where Eve's having the worst time and I just think thank god Max is there really. Yeah yeah I think uh, and then maybe this goes back to the fact that Eve is kind of you know she sort of feels real real to me I've spent so much time with her I wanted there to be these this sort of support system in place for her mm. and also I think because at times she can test the reader in terms of you know she makes mistakes and she isn't perfect and the reader will probably feel frustrated with some of the decisions she makes but I think by having these characters who see beneath that hopefully that encourages the readers to do mm. so as well and to empathize with her in those situations and look beyond the you know the bad choices she's making yeah I think I felt so much empathy for her and there's a there's a sequence of events near the end and I've already said this to you when I was reading it I was like wanting to reach into the pages and and rescue her because it was just so unbearable like intense and I just felt like oh god someone needs to help her um because it's almost like a domino effect of of things happening around her and decisions that she makes um when you were writing it I know you were felt you felt very attached to her how did you feel when you were writing these these kind of events particularly when you knew you had to make things worse for her were you kind of emotionally drained by it did you feel like you didn't want to put her through all this pain it was yeah it's interesting because so I really wanted the reader to feel what Eve is feeling and so the way that I kind of went about that was when I wrote these you know the scenes when she's at her saddest which is like this scene on Christmas day where she's entirely isolated and you know she does something that all families do she goes she goes for a walk um but it leaves her feeling even more alone than ever um and yeah when I when I was trying to think sort of write the way she was feeling the only way that I could think to do that and to do it well was to revisit feelings I had had in the past and so to think about maybe when I felt sad and try and articulate that on the page mm. so I guess it was tricky in that sense because <laughs> it was sort of revisiting sad feelings of my own but like um, method acting you know, but method writing yeah all in the name <laughs> of art Chloe yeah. <laughs> um I think that she had to go through it in order to come out the other end and there was no way for Eve to move forward with her life without revisiting what had gone so wrong in the past. And so it had to happen. Um, and, and like I said, there are these sort of moments of light amid the dark, even in the darkest moments. I mean, they're sort of more and more dispersed in those dark moments, but there's always something to break it up, I hope. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I want to talk a little bit about her relationship with Grace and Grace's mm. death. Because even though we only see their relationship through snapshots, we still get a really strong sense of their friendship and how close they were and how devastating her death was to Eve. How did you determine how you were going to portray their relationship? Because you've done it in a very kind of fragmented way. Was it, was there any point where you decided you were going to almost like alternate chapters or was there, was that, was, were you always going to do it in that kind of fragmented kind of little snapshots of memory way or did that change? That was sort of always the plan. I think, although in a way the book is about this relationship and this kind of relationship that made Eve who she is, for me, the book was always, was and is Eve's story. Mm. And so I, I, I wanted that to be clear. And, and obviously being set in the first person present, you are, you're with her every step of the way. So the decision I made was to, was to sort of depict that relationship that she had with Grace through these flashbacks, which in the beginning are, they're quite long. There's only maybe one or two flashbacks per chapter. And, you know, they're sparked by things that Eve has seen or, or heard or even smelled. Mm. And then as the narrative goes on and, and as things escalate, they snag at Eve more regularly. And it was kind of a way of just showing that the past is, is so close, is so close always. And yeah, they just, they sort of pile on in very quick succession as the book goes on. But the main role of those flashbacks, I think for me, at least the, the early ones, was to show this relationship between the two girls when they were at university and to kind of give the reader insight into why Eve is struggling to the extent that she is now. Um, as I've said, she kind of, you know, she does make bad, bad choices and, and hopefully by seeing how Eve was before and how important Grace was to her, you kind of, you can empathize with her more, I mm. think. I think without those flashbacks, um, it would be easier to dismiss Eve and to get frustrated with her. Mm, definitely. So I'm interested to hear about how your, how the novel developed really while you were writing it. So did you go in with set ideas about the themes you wanted to explore? Obviously you, you, you came at it with this idea and this voice. How, how easy was it for you to kind of work your way through the novel or, or did you already kind of have these set ideas in mind when you started writing or did they develop as you, as you wrote? Mm. I, I think I definitely had, there were themes that I wanted to explore. So the book itself really started out, you know, after I did this creative writing course, 
I I was just having fun with it to begin with and I was so enjoying the process of creative writing which was something I hadn't done before that for a long time I just kind of did it when I felt like it and I and I did it for fun and and I made it up as I went along which in hindsight (laughs) made my job a little bit harder when it came to editing um but I guess it also meant that you know it was quite a freeing thing because I wasn't writing for anyone but me um but yes there were definitely themes early on that I wanted to explore and one is that idea that I spoke about of kind of seeing and being seen who gets to do the looking um and how and why that looking takes place and the other one was to do with mental health I think and the way you know the repercussions of mental ill health especially at university and the way that they can kind of linger afterwards so when I wrote the book I was 26 so I was the the age that Eve is and I was in that kind of hazy mid-space that I described earlier and so it was probably natural for for me to sort of try and articulate um, and explore on the page the feelings that some of the feelings that I had been feeling and that I think lots of people feel throughout their lives but especially in their kind of early 20s. Mm. So you said one of the things that you really enjoyed about writing this novel was kind of escaping into Eve's voice so was that the thing that kind of kept you going? Was that because I suppose if you started out writing this just for fun, you weren't thinking in your head, oh, I'm going to become a publi- published <clears> author. <throat> so what was it that you, what was it that kind of drove you? What did you enjoy the most about writing this novel? Yeah, it was just, it was just something for me, really. It was, um, it was something new and I did enjoy being in her head and it was kind of, I mean, it started off kind of being a challenge in a way of trying a different kind of writing. But then I just, I loved that form of writing. It was so freeing for me. I think because of being a journalist, I was very used to kind of having a brief and having a deadline and a word count. And Mm. this was something that was kind of, you know, without just sounding very cringy the possibilities <laughs> were kind of endless um so so yeah I just um I just wanted to keep going so I read that you started a kind of fiction course just for something to do really just some, just for a change so can you tell us a little bit about how, kind of where your interest in writing fiction started was it that course or have you always obviously you've always loved writing because you you do it for a job but did you always have at the back of your mind that oh maybe one day I'll I'll write a book where did that kind of come from mm-hmm. I think I mean I've always been a really big reader and I grew up um my my stepdad is he's a journalist he was a books editor when I was younger for a newspaper in America and he I remember he used to get sent tons of books every week you know from publishers in the hope that he would review one or or assign one to be reviewed but the majority would go into what we called the out pile which was this ever-growing pile of books and (laughs) that pile was right outside my bedroom door and I would occasionally kind of rootle through the pile and steal one and then (laughs) pretend to review it um I didn't actually review it but so I think books have kind of always been there they'd always 
perhaps be in the back of my mind. I think I just honestly didn't ever consider that it would be a viable career, that it would be something I could do for work. Whereas journalism, that always seemed, you know, that could be a job. Mm. Um, And I think it was partly reading. I remember one book in particular that I read quite shortly before I started the course, and it was Emma Klein's The Girls. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read it. Um, But I remember when I read that and I I saw how young she was, the author, and I thought, oh, we're allowed. Like, (laughs) I'm allowed, maybe. Maybe I can try this. Um, But still not really with the view to publishing a book, but it just sort of opened my eyes to the Mm. possibility that I could try. (laughs) So once you decided you were were working on this novel, just for fun, at what point did you think, Mm, I've got something here and I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt to get an agent and and get it published so what was your process of of, of getting a book deal and getting your agent? So I think I can't remember if there was an exact turning point where I thought you know what this can this can work but I definitely as time went on I started to take it more seriously. I began to get up for that hour before work and to work on my book and I would do it very kind of diligently every day and then I would continue as I walked to work to kind of take notes on my phone and any sort of snatches of time that I could get I would be thinking about the book or or writing little notes for the book um and then once I had once I had a manuscript a complete manuscript I worked on edits and when it was finally at the shape that I I felt it was ready to go out to agents I started that very long hard process or what for me was a very long hard process (laughs) Um, and I sent out many submissions received many rejections also was met with a lot of white noise so lots of agents I found didn't respond um, which you know now I know how busy they all are it makes sense Um, but the way that I ended up working with my brilliant agent Emma was kind of mad because I submitted to her very early on. Um, I saw that she she said on her agent bio that she loved novels that kind of uh, explore those moments that define all of our lives. And she was drawn to novels about families and relationships of all kinds and often dysfunctional families. So I submitted to her and almost a year later, she wrote to me uh, to say that she had found my email accidentally in her archive and I I know and so at at this point I was sort of working on and off with another agent but it was quite clear I think to both of us that we were pulling in different directions with the book Mm. and so when Emma got in touch it was just the perfect timing Um, and it was kind of very clear to me immediately that she was the agent that I wanted to represent me um and we then worked on the manuscript together for almost a year I would say um I, I know it kind of differs hugely agent to agent but Emma's really kind of keen on the editorial process and she's a brilliant editor as well as mm. agent and we then submitted to publishers the year after that I think it was July 2020 so it was just at, towards the end of the first lockdown mm-hmm. and I was very lucky and one editor quickly preempted within I think a week so so after a huge long process once we finally got to submitting publishers it was quite quick. 
that story about the email is just kind of horrifying but I'm so glad that it had a happy ending <laughs> I know I know it's kind of fate-like but also very cruel <laughs> mm. but yeah, I'm glad she I hope she's re- regularly checking her archive now that that's happened <laughs> I know I'm sure she is <laughs> so I suppose with this novel you didn't really have like a writing routine as such you just kind of wrote when you felt like it and you were thinking about it on the way to work how's that changed for you now are you a bit more methodical are you a a bit more of a planner now you've got to write something and you're kind of I'm I'm guessing you're under deadline at the moment so it maybe has changed your process a little bit yes um I think it has definitely the the first book yeah, as I said, was sort of make, making, well, mostly making it up as I went along, um, which was great for the writing, hard for the editing. My second book, I approached it totally differently. So I sat with it, sat with the idea for a very long time, kind of let that idea percolate. I did quite a bit of research. The second one sort of required more research. Mm-hmm. Um And I even wrote a short story to kind of figure out whether I wanted to spend more time with these characters. And then I, shock horror, wrote a plan, (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) which turns out I think is quite a helpful thing to do. Um, Even if you then deviate from the plan later on, which I did at Mm. times. And I, I actually, for this second book, didn't know how it was going to end exactly, but I I knew how I was going to get there. And I found it hugely helpful. Um, Yes. And then in terms of uh, the actual writing routine, I'm now in a slightly different position because I'm now a freelance uh, writer as opposed to writing in-house for one publication. So I have a little bit more flexibility in terms of, you know, when I've got a huge deadline coming up for the book I can kind of move my journalism Mm. work you know before or after that I mean that's ideally what's supposed to happen often it ends up with a lot all at once um (laughs) but I'm getting there I'm getting there with my routine (laughs) did it change when you started working with your editor because obviously then deadlines crop up and you have to be a bit more you have to be a bit strict with yourself to to be done at a certain point and to I think editing is different because you're working in a very close way with your work and you have to kind of remember what you've taken out and remember what you need to change did that did that change the way you worked as well yes it did and I think particularly because when I was with the writing I found that I was able to dip in and out quite easily and to to write for short short sharp stints whereas with the editing what I quite quickly realized was that I needed larger chunks to do that kind of deep thinking that's required especially Mm. with you know the more structural edits where you start to feel like you're in the middle of kind of the operating theater and you really (laughs) can't just like get out of there in the middle and leave stuff because then it's a total mess (laughs) um so but I think I probably didn't realize that quite soon enough and as a result the editing I think this is partly why with my with my agent Emma the the editing of the first book took quite a while because to begin with we would talk through edits and I'd go away and I'd sort of not quite get beneath the surface of what I needed to be doing um and it was only really when I allowed myself to kind of take a week off work where I really was able to get properly sort of stuck into it and I guess you know that's that's just a hazard of being you know writing a book and also having a full-time job which Mm. many of us 
have. So, um, but yes, it's sort of a big lesson, I think. How do you find that switch then between doing your freelance writing and your journalism and your fiction writing? Because um, I'm the same. And sometimes it's when you've done a, a, a an article or something and then you've got to kind of take that hat off and put a new hat on. It can be quite, quite disconcerting to, to have to kind of switch your language and your, the way your brain works in that way. Yeah, it really can be. It's funny because in a way, I, I think the two work well hand in hand in that, you know, the book writing is such a long, slow process. And I really enjoy having these very sort of quick things that I can tick off my list mm. um, while I'm doing that, because often, you know, I'll pitch a piece one day and then two days later I'll have written it and then I file it and then it's done. And, and I find that quite satisfying. And I, I think that the, yeah, having the two works really well. I'm not sure I want a part of me wonders if I would go mad if I was just working on such a long-term project mm. um, in isolation and also, you know, the journalism I'm often getting out and I'm interviewing people or I'm seeing exhibitions and writing about them. And as authors, we're then so often stuck at home behind our computers. Mm. And I think that getting out there is so necessary, especially if, if like me, you are writing about, you know, the current kind of state of things. And if you're, if you're writing a realist novel that's set in the present day, you really need to be seeing things and hearing things mm. and um, yeah, getting out there. So I think, I think it helps. I was wondering now if you could share with us some sage advice and give us your top three tips for other writers who might be considering writing a first novel or have already started. Mm, yes, I can. So my first and I think my main piece of advice uh, would be take your time. So this is something, you know, with the first novel, once I once I realised, once I thought this could be a book, I think I didn't really do that. I think I felt this inexplicable rush. Um, no one had no one told me to rush. I didn't have a deadline, but I, I felt that, you know, I needed to get it done. And I didn't give myself that time to do the kind of deep thinking that I spoke about just before. So whereas with the second book, I've sort of, yeah, it's been a very different process. And I think the the second book got or has got to closer to where it needs to be quicker than the first as a result. Um, the second one kind of ties into to what I said about getting out there. And that would be to consume everything and anything you can so to read a lot of course yes but also to watch films and go to exhibitions and also just go and have lunch by yourself and look around rather than reading while you do it rather than looking at your phone um you know look at people on the tube which is actually quite a sort of daunting <laughs> thing to do but and everyone's sort of staring down at their phone anyway but just keep your eyes open and your ears open mm. um and my third tip would be to, I don't think you need necessarily a writer's group as such, but I think that finding even one or two people who whose opinions you really trust and, you know, who can critique your work and also whose work you can critique is really invaluable. I think, you know, being, I'm also 
with my sort of journalism role, I I edit as well as write. And I think that editing is one of the best things you can do as a writer. It really helps to kind of read other people's work with that kind of editor's hat on. And so, yeah, that would be, that would definitely be my third tip, I think. And thinking now about readers, can you think of any novels that you think make good comparisons to wet paint books that you think share a similar space or similar themes? Yes. Um, so I would say, and she is one of my favourite authors, I'd say um, Otessa Mushveg's My Year of Rest and Relaxation, probably for that kind of gritty, raw quality it has, which I think wet paint shares in a way. Um, also Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, which I think is another book that is incredibly sad at times but also mm. hilarious she is just she's the kind of master at balancing out sadness and and humor I think um Raven Leilani's luster has those sort of art themes going on as well and one book another debut actually from this year which I loved is Abigail Bergstrom's what a shame which also the protagonist Matilda is sort of grappling with grief in fact Abigail and I said that um or I said to Abigail that I think Eve and Matilda could be quite good friends but perhaps not the best influences on each other <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah but maybe good they don't know each other <laughs> I'm actually interviewing Abigail on the podcast day in a couple of months so uh that'll be uh, interesting to see what she has to say whether she thinks they would uh would get along or like you say uh lead each other down the wrong path <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so finally you've already talked a little bit about your second book but are you able to share a little bit about what it is about yes I am um so the second book is kind of appropriately called second self um and it's about decisions and how we come to them and minds and bodies and paintings and the way in which they are at the mercy of society and nature. So it follows Kathy, who is this 35 year old woman, she works in conservation. So it's her job to kind of put the brakes on an artwork's aging process. And when she met her husband, Noah, who is now 46, he joked that, you know, her skills might come in handy one day as he began to sort of grow old. But anyway, when they first got together they agreed that they didn't want children and it's not that Kathy now knows that she does but she is beginning to wonder whether one day she might and the novel sort of follows Kathy as she navigates her mind her body her marriage and the sort of sticky subject of fertility and a creasing. well that sounds great and I'm really looking forward to reading it Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Chloe. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. That was Chloe Ashby talking about her debut literary novel, Wet Paint, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. <laughs>